In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have several exciting topics to talk about. We are going to spend some time talking about our favorite senator, Joe Manchin. And we're going to talk about how wonderful and bubbly and, you know, <laughs> heroic he is with all of his stances. And and uh, I just love know. a person who, you know, takes a strong principled stance on something. Yeah. You'd prefer it to be the right principles, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And then we're going to spend some time talking about the idea of a global minimum corporate tax rate, which uh, is being discussed in the G7 summit. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in learning more about that. I think Michael's probably going to be leading that discussion a little bit more. What? A, a, to- <laughs> a topic on a subject that's like seemingly really boring that someone should care about? Michael's going to talk about that? What? <laughs> <laughs> And then we're going to end the pod by talking about the idea of worker-owned co-ops, which I'm very excited to to discuss and to put into the conversation. Uh, yeah. Also, Michael, this is our 80th episode. I know. We are old enough to be my father's mother. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is that's a really special day to be to be a grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> And wow, uh, awesome. I think I think she still listens to the pod. So, uh, you know, shout out, Grandma. We're as old as you now. <laughs> Excellent. And, of course, if you want to help us get to episode 100 or beyond um, and you enjoy the show, feel free to go to go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theperspectrum and throw us a couple of bucks. You'll get access to some exclusive patron content and you'll help support the show. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and you'll make and you'll make both of us happy. Very happy. And when when we're happy, our content's better. Mm, that's true. It's it's a the content isn't more feedback. isn't more happy, but it but oh, we're yeah. happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we'll we'll, we'll talk sad. about super we'll talk about super depressing topics, but you know we'll 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 be smiling while we yeah, do. Yeah, be peppy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Speaking boy, of, let's, let's talk about the death penalty. <laughs> Speaking of happy subjects. Michael, (laughs) what are the COVID numbers? Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Okay, so worldwide at this point, 175 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 172 million last week, which is about 3 million new cases in a week, which is about the same increase that we saw the prior week. So pretty much the same level of, of spread. Um, at this point, 3.77 million people have died worldwide, uh, which is up from 3.70 million last week, uh, which is about a 1.9% increase or about 70,000 new deaths this week. So far in the world, 29 doses have uh, been administered for every 100 people, which is up from 26 doses per 100 last week, which is and actually... Uh, a higher increase than we've seen from previous weeks. For a while, it was increasing about about two doses per 100 uh, for a number of weeks, and this is three doses per 100 week over week. So that's that's a good increase. Um, 
in the U.S. at this point, we've had 34.3 million people contract COVID, which is up from 34.1 million last week, which is about um, 0.6% increase or about 200 new 200,000 new cases this week, which is, again, about the same increase that we saw over the previous week, which I feel like is not too surprising considering where we are with our vaccinations because those are like barely improved week over week. So at this point, 52% of the population has received an initial dose, uh, which is just 1% uh, increased from 51% last week. Um, and 42% of the population is fully vaccinated, which is again, just a 1% increase over last week. So not too surprising that, that we've stalled on vaccinations. And so we're still seeing cases spread at similar rates. Well, I think it is important to also note with regard to vaccinations that we haven't really been vaccinating minors as much. Mm -hmm. And that's still a pretty significant chunk of our population. So once we start getting those, getting, um, more kids vaccinated, then uh, hopefully that number will tick up uh, yeah. significantly more. Um, and what that also means is that more adults, like the, the, the number of adults who are fully vaccinated is actually more than 50% of the population. Mm -hmm. um, so Yeah, that makes sense. So, and adults, you know, based on the scientific studies, they're more likely to spread the virus. They're more likely to be able to spread it to other people. So the people, the, 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 where the vaccines are most concentrated are on the people that are most likely to actually spread it. Yeah. So and, and that's, on the people, that's an important point. And then the people that are most likely to get severe cases that could lead to deaths. Yes. And so we're actually seeing an improvement, a, a more significant improvement in deaths than we're seeing in case spread. So, so far, 613,000 people have died, which is obviously, you know, incredibly high, but that's up from 611,000 last week. So that's just 2,000 um, new deaths in a week or about 285 deaths per day. So if yeah. you annualize that, that's about 100,000 deaths per year, which means that, at, like, if that rate continues then COVID has dropped down to the seventh leading cause of death down from, you know, it was the second leading cause of death by, by daily death rate um, at its peak in January. So it's significantly become, become significantly less deadly um, in the U S as people have gotten vaccinated, which I think supports the, uh, which is supported by the, you know, higher percentage of more at risk people getting vaccinated. Yeah. yeah. And let's not forget that there was a time where we were having a 9-11 a day. Exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, and we're at like a tenth of that now. So this is definitely a vast improvement. Damn it, Michael, you, you promised me a depressing segment. That's actually pretty... It's good news. Pretty, uh, yeah, that's good news. What the hell, Michael? <laughs> well, what, what can I say? We've got great patrons that are making me happy. <laughs> Speaking of things that make you happy, <laughs> I thought you were going to say things that make me depressed. <laughs> Let's talk about Joe Manchin. Oh, he's my favorite. I love that guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> so why why are we talking about Joe Manchin? So Joe Manchin sucks. <laughs> <laughs> he he came out last week with an op-ed in West Virginia's largest newspaper. Um, coming out against the For the People Act. Um, so before we dive into 
why Joe Manchin is a douche. Um, I did want to just quickly recap what the For the People Act is because it will compound what a douche he is. Um, <laughs> so we talked a little bit about this in an episode called Not Enough, Definitely a Start a few weeks ago where you're talking about voter suppression. And this act is uh, one of the components of the act is is directly focused on voter suppression. So it's a pretty huge overhaul of our um, electoral system. Um, and so the act contains uh, steps to kind of shore up our voting system make it and make it easier for people to vote. So it includes automatic voter regist registration as well as same-day and online voter registration. It prevents um, certain kinds of voter roll purges. Um, it restores full protections of the Voting Rights Act, which was kind of which was recently eroded by the Supreme Court. Um, it establishes national early voting and strengthens vote by mail. It also restores voting rights to people with prior convictions and this is where it gets super cool. It provides for uh, for small donor matching by public funds to help finance elections, to help, you know, ordinary Americans have a greater role in financing elections. Um, it also has a number of campaign finance reforms that are focused on increasing uh, transparency in, in donations and as well as um, campaign finance accountability. Um, it also in, it includes a number of election security improvements, like removing paperless voting systems, um, which helps promotes, promote audits. Um, and it also establishes an independent redistricting commissions in states as a way to draw new congressional districts to help end partisan gerrymandering for federal elections. So pretty vast bill covers a lot of really important topics not perfect but like desperately needed huh so out of curiosity in this uh in this op-ed that joe manchin wrote I, I assume he was very specific about which of those provisions he was against because mm. obviously the only reason why a person would vote against a policy i mean the only reason why you would vote against a law is because there are aspects of it that you disagree with yeah. I mean, you would have to be a complete dumbass to, you know, to vote against a policy where you agreed with all the provisions. So I assume that he provided detailed analysis of why he disagreed with specific aspects of that policy. Am I correct? Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> the only aspect of the bill that he discussed in his op-ed was that it was 800 pages long. So I think what he's actually opposed to is reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so in this op-ed which i mean this is embarrassing like this is if, if i ever in my life wrote an op-ed like this i would be i i would just like years later like i would i would read it and i would cringe yeah it's like it's like i remember i remember a while ago, I found an old notebook in which I'd written down a bunch of like objectivist talking points and like arguments. And I went back and read it the other day. And not only were they bad arguments, but I also did them wrong. And I was like, <laughs> I was such a dummy. I was such an yeah. idiot. <laughs> so literally the only thing that he says that makes him against it is the fact that no Republicans are supporting it. Yeah. That's it. Yep. So, That's so it. yeah. 
And and you know that he's going to, you know, that's the attack he's going to take because literally the first two sentences are, quote, the right to vote is fundamental to our American democracy and protecting that right should not be about party or politics. Least of all, protecting this right, which is a value I share, should never be done in a partisan manner. That is first of all, that's so such a poorly fallacious written. argument. Yeah, that's such a fallacious <laughs> argument. Like, okay, okay, just let's just pa- protecting this right should not be done in a partisan manner. If it's protecting the right, why would it matter? Yeah. And and look, it, it's a false equivalency argument, and it's a yes. middle ground argument. Yeah. So basically, he's he's drawing an equivalency between Republican attempts to suppress votes and Democratic attempts to not suppress, to unsuppress votes. Exactly. Which means that, yeah, he's literally saying that because Democrats want to protect the right and Republicans want to suppress it, there's nothing he can do about it. Like it's, it's just, it just, it just is, it totally falls on his face. Also. Okay. Okay. This might be worthy of a D bag. This quote, he said throughout my tenure in politics, I have been guided by this simple philosophy. Our party labels can't prevent us from doing what is right. Joe, you are literally saying because his party label as a Republican isn't voting for this bill, I can't do this right thing. Yeah. Basically, if you if you take all of the like if we took all of the party labels and actually I was I was talking to uh, I, I, I talked to our friend Chris about this recently, and he actually suggested, what if we had a system where like, there was a separate governing body that wrote the laws and a separate mm. governing body that voted on them, mm. and you didn't know, and the, the one that voted on them wasn't allowed to know who actually wrote the laws. So wow. party would be completely removed from it. So the only way to completely remove party from this is for you to not care who's voting for it and who's not voting for it to just vote for it based on the merits. Yeah. Like your argument defeats itself. Also, Republicans do not value democracy. Yes, exactly. They don't. They have proven that. They have demonstrated that. There's not a single provision of this bill that any reasonable person could make a could make uh could could object to. In fact, you know, a lot of people like, like I can I can hear the arguments that people are probably thinking up. Well, uh, Joe Manchin is from West Virginia, and West Virginia is a very conservative state, so he has to be moderate in order to appeal to those conservatives. So, according to a um, to a poll uh, from the organization End Citizens United, seventy nine percent of West Virginians support this bill. Now, to be fair. And Citizens United does, you know, they do have an agenda, but part of that agenda is one of activism. And the only way for you to actually achieve your end goals is to have, you know, an accurate reading of where people stand. So, you know, I would I would encourage people to look at the link, look at the methodology to make sure that, um, you know, to to um, to look at how they actually conducted it to. Um, you know, to remove suspicions of potential bias in this. But when you think about the provisions, it's intuitive. You see, one of the things that I think that Democrats have completely screwed the pooch on with regard to messaging 
and in voter suppression is the focus on voter ID laws. Yeah. Like, and look, I am not saying that we need to, that, that we need to just capitulate to Republicans on voter ID laws. Because again, the argument for legislation always comes down to there's a problem that needs to be fixed and that requires legislation to fix it. But if that problem does not exist, then there does not need to be legislation to fix it. So the point of voter ID laws is to fix the problem of, of voter fraud. There is no evidence of voter fraud. Therefore, there is no need for the legislation. But the issue is when you just go to the average Joe or Jane on the street and say, I believe that we shouldn't have any, you shouldn't have to have any ID in order to vote. Like most people are going to hear that and they're going to think, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, mm. I mean, I have, I have a driver's license and in my wallet, you know, just, just show them that real quickly and I vote. Like, what's the big deal? The things that the Democrats need to focus on with this, with regard to messaging on this is number one, restrictive ID laws. So mm -hmm. for example, in Texas, you can use a concealed carry permit as your ID to vote, which I got no problem with, but you cannot use a student ID. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is clearly partisan. That is clearly like a, a, a partisan attempt to restrict who's voting because, you know, a person with a gun is more likely to vote Republican and a student is more likely to vote for a Democrat. So focusing on that, focusing on the restrictive elements of the voter ID laws. Number two, focusing on the more ridiculous measures. For example, limiting mail-in voting, uh, being against automatic voter registration, supporting voter purges, um, Limiting the amount of time in which a person can absentee vote. Limiting the amount of reasons for which a person can, uh, can absentee vote. All of those are indefensible positions that Republicans are taking, which is why when they talk about this publicly, what they focus on is the voter ID. Yeah. What they try to say is Democrats... The, the, the only thing to talk, the only conversation we're having here is Democrats think that you shouldn't have and you shouldn't need any ID in order to vote. Republicans think you, 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 sh you do need an ID. And when that's the conversation, obviously, Republicans are going to win in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. So but when you actually go, when you actually show this law to Republicans in the state of West Virginia, one of the most conservative states in the union, they overwhelmingly support it. Mm hmm. 76% so 76% of Republicans in West Virginia who are likely to vote support it. Yeah, exactly. 76%. So why the fuck doesn't Manchin support this? Yeah. It's, it really is just him talking himself into a, a stupid corner with his stupid head. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, and the thing is like, he's, he's, He's just accepting Republican right-wing talking points and like literally slandering Democrats who have written this bill for no reason. He said in his op-ed, quote, Today's debate about how to protect our right to vote and to hold elections, however, is not about finding common ground, but seeking partisan advantage. We don't. There is no common ground. Well, there is to, no yeah. common ground. There's no common ground. Republicans want less people to vote. Democrats want to enhance access to vote. Sometimes one side is just wrong. 
Yeah. This is the middle ground fallacy. Sometimes one side is flat out wrong and compromise between them is is capitulation yeah. to the wrong people. Yeah. And and the fallacy, the other fallacy implis- implied there is that any action which ends up vote uh, protecting or benefiting a specific party is inherently a partisan action. The fact that Republicans are in a position right now where they have disproportionate power is a problem. And increasing access of people to vote, even even if it does, which there's mixed evidence, even if it would uh, you know, benefit Democrats, which is only mixed evidence for, doesn't make it a partisan thing. On top of this, this bill explicitly is designed to limit partisan influence in elections. It specifically creates independent redistricting commissions to limit partisan gerrymandering. Like it has multiple provisions aimed at at not making, you know, partisan politics, but taking partisanship out of the structure of our voting system. So yeah. like he's literally like lying and pretending like this bill is a partisan act on uh, by Democrats. He's just slandering Democrats who have written this bill in his op-ed for no reason because all he's doing is is telling Republicans Republicans in West Virginia and Democrats in West Virginia who support this bill that for some reason they shouldn't. Yeah. And for a bad reason. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just it's really remarkable. Yeah. And I would also like to point out that he actually he actually was um a co-sponsor of a very similar bill to this in 2019. So he's already demonstrated that he doesn't actually, he's not against any of the actual provisions because why mm-hmm. would you? Yeah. You know, you, you can't say, oh, I'm against automatic voter registration and then take that back to your constituency and try to defend that. You can't, which is funny because one of the points that he makes in the op-ed is basically, um, like I, I have, I, I would never make a vote that I cannot, go back to my constituency and justify. Mm-hmm. So. I, I, well, he can't because he didn't read it. You know, he can't, he can't <laughs> go back and tell him about it because it's 800 pages long and that's a long bill. So <laughs> <laughs> like just because it's, you know, just because it's Parson doesn't mean it doesn't mean that it's bad. And I would just like to point out in states where Democrats control the state legislature, this would help Republicans mm-hmm. like in Maryland which is heavily gerrymandered for yeah. Republicans or for, for, for Democrats, this would help Republicans. For Massachusetts, which is gerrymandered for Democrats, this would help Republicans. Yeah, exactly. It's not inherently partisan. It is aimed at removing partisanship and increasing yeah. the availability and access to voting and the taking is, money out of, like, and reducing the influence of money in politics. These are all good things. But the thing is, Republicans do not benefit from a fair playing field. They mm. just don't because their policies suck and people yeah. hate them. <laughs> like, go through it issue by issue, and almost every single Republican position is overwhelmingly opposed. This is why they've been focusing on stupid culture war issues, which they're not even consistent on, like, like, like cancel culture which they're definitely not consistent on. This is why they focus on that because they got nothing left. 
All right. You go to your constituency and say, oh, I support uh, tax giveaways to large corporations. Like <laughs> even even the biggest Republicans are going to laugh your ass out of the room. The, the Even the most hardcore Republican voters are going to laugh your ass out of the room because that's not popular. It's just not. So. This is so frustrating. And the thing is, like, this is exactly the kind of thing that we were worried about coming from Joe Manchin when we yeah. got the amount of control in the Senate that we had, that he would all of a sudden become the most powerful man in Washington and totally screw over the agenda. I mean, even Chris Wallace yeah. <laughs> asked him if he, you know, don't you think you're being naive with trying to negotiate, especially with, with especially something like, so j just to you know go off the Chris Wallace point, like especially something like voter suppression, where again, Republicans are the one making this ones making this a seriously politicized political issue. You know, it's not the Democrats that that want to prevent people from voting. So why are you going to the people that are trying that are like acting against this interest and saying, hey, please agree with you know agree with expanding the access to, you know the right to vote even though that's explicitly the opposite of what you've been trying to do but anyway so so chris wallace when talking about the filibuster which joe manchin has also said he's he's not gonna uh, vote against uh chris wallace said quote if you were to keep the idea that maybe you would vote to kill the filibuster wouldn't that give republicans an incentive to actually negotiate because old joe manchin out there is out there and who knows what he's going to do by taking it off the table, haven't you empowered Republicans to be obstructionists? Like, Joe Manchin is like pretending like he's doing a great job playing politics. All he's doing is giving power to Republicans. Yeah. And, and also, like, his, the whole thesis of his argument is, oh, I, I know that there are still Republicans out there that are willing to work with, with us in order to accomplish things that we all, we all value, that we all think are important. Like, I know there's got to be Republicans out there. And, you know, he bring he, he, he suggests the John Lewis Voting Rights uh, Advancement Act as basically an alternative to the um, uh, to the, the For the People Act. And he points out that uh, Senator uh, Lisa Murkowski and um, I believe Susan Collins, uh, although he doesn't specifically mention Susan Collins in this, that they support this law. And he's like, see, see, bipartisanship is possible. Here's the problem with that. Number one, I mean, it's it's a stupid middle ground fallacy, as we've already established. But number two, all right, say Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski both vote for it. Say Mitt Romney votes for it. You know, say say Ben Sass votes for it. Say you have four Republicans voting. Say say every single Republican that voted for the, the commission to investigate the, the people that tried to murder them on January 6th. Say all seven of those, of those Republicans support this act. It still couldn't pass because of the filibuster. So even if you do have bipartisanship on this, it's still not going to pass. You're not going to get 10 Republicans. It's just not going to happen. And he can't be dumb enough to not know that yeah he definitely knows that there's no way he's that stupid because you would have to be the dumbest person in the senate to believe that and 
there's some pretty stiff competition in the Senate. <laughs> I mean, you know. Let's not even talk about the House. <laughs> let's, let's not even talk about it. <laughs> Like, so there's no way he's that naive. So then the question is, why is he doing this? Why is he, why is he against this? Because we've already established that there's no political advantage to it electorally because Republicans in his own state support this. We've already established that uh, there's no possible way that he could be stupid enough to actually believe that he's going to find these Republicans. And honestly, I would say that the Capitol riot vote, the, the Capitol riot commission vote, that should have been evidence enough for him because he even like, there's even videos of, of him on the Senate floor basically yelling at Mitch McConnell because of, you know, Mitch McConnell blocking the commission. Like, if you couldn't find 10 Republicans to vote for a commission to investigate people that tried to murder them, which is one of the most obvious votes you could possibly make, and selfish votes... In what reality do you think Republicans would vote for a bill that would directly hurt their electoral chances because it would even the playing field and is, and is part of the Democratic agenda? It's not going to happen. So why the hell are you voting against this? I mean, either he is just corrupt or he just is enjoying the power fantasy. I mean... Those are the only two possible options that I see as, as explanations. If we rule out the idea that he's just this stupid. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Good Actually. So, Michael, what is Good Actually and why do we do it? Well, on this show, we talk a lot of doom and gloom. You know, there's a lot of serious subjects out there, and it's hard to see light at the end of the tunnel. It's hard to see where there's goodness. Um, but good actually is to remind us when we see stories in the news or or um, something out there that like really makes us feel good, that inspires us, and makes us realize that you know, good actually is all around us. <laughs> <laughs> so Nathan, what is our good actually this week? So our good actually this week is a story about karma and compassion. Wow. So live, laugh, love. <laughs> so uh, this incident happened in uh, Moses Lake, which is in Washington state. And so there was the, there are these dudes, there are these people that were uh, out on their boat at the beginning of Pride Month, and they were waving rainbow flags, you know, to celebrate uh, gay pride, queer pride, LGBTQ pride, you know, as as one does uh, during Pride Month, because that's kind of the point. And all of a sudden, these other boaters decided to start uh, circling their boat, yelling slurs at them, homophobic slurs, uh, flipping them off. And uh, you know, for those of you that ever that have ever been out boating. Um, when a boat rides by you, it creates waves that kind of rocks your boat. So circling a boat is a good way of disturbing somebody's peaceful, uh, relaxing, 
um, day out. So these people were being. And like, it can be pretty threatening. Like you're like, and, and you yeah. would risk capsizing their boat with, uh, yeah. you know, when you're creating waves and uh, wakes like that. Yeah. So that's not what ended up happening because as they were doing this, as they were riding around the boat, flipping off these people that were just celebrating gay pride, all of a sudden their boat just up and caught fire. Like, <laughs> <poof>. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> like it just, it just went and caught fire. And, uh, and based on the article I've read, um, investigators are still not completely sure why. Uh, I don't really understand the uh, physiology God. of boats. Well, the, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like God <laughs> hates homophobes. <laughs> like, you just... Shocker. So anyways, so the boat just catches fire, and the, the homophobes in the boat had to jump out, and they were in the middle of the lake, and guess what they did? They swam towards the people they were harassing in mm. order to be rescued. And the people that they were harassing helped them onto their boat and drove them to shore. That's really and generous. That's really generous. And that's really big. I, I mean, and the thing is the law requires you to do that unless you feel threatened by the person. And based on what these people had been doing, they probably would have been within their legal rights to just up and leave their ass. Mm-hmm. And I, I know a lot of people that would have just left their ass, but, but they didn't. And I think that's, I think that's admirable. And I hope that these, uh, I hope that these people reevaluated who their God actually smites. <laughs> <laughs> Man. So I guess the real good actually this week is God is good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, and that's good. actually. Good actually. So for our second segment, we are going to be diving deep on a topic that we know all of you are super psyched to talk about, and that is, it's another tax segment. Yay! <laughs> no, I'm I'm really I'm really excited. Uh, this is this is a subject that I, you know, I'm I'm not as much in the uh, the, the financial sector as you are, mm. so I feel like I'm going to learn a lot from this segment. Um, you know, I, I, I have a general understanding of what it is and how it works, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you uh, take the lead on this one. Yeah, sure thing. Well, it's it's a pretty it's potentially pretty exciting. There's there's some there's some reasons to be excited and then reasons to be not so excited. So we'll get into it. So first of all, what happened? So earlier this week at the G7, which is a gathering of the seven most powerful representatives from the seven most powerful nations, um, Janet Yellen, who is Biden's Treasury Secretary and a total badass, um, was able... We did a profile on her. Yes, we did. Yeah. And and yeah. consensus is she's yeah. a badass. Um, and, that's, and, that's, and that's us saying that. We yeah. love to find every possible thing we can uh, criticize about the Biden administration and completely blow it out of proportion. Mm. <laughs> we're like, yeah, no, the... the this woman's a badass. Certified. <laughs> For a treasury secretary. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and what she was able to do was convince the finance ministers of those six other nations to come together and agree to a two-part global tax cooperation system, which by itself, seven of the most powerful nations agreeing on global tax cooperation is a huge fucking deal. Because... 
every nation, as you probably would have assumed, uh, operates their own tax policy. And as a result, um, companies, as we're going to talk more about, are able to take significant advantage of the difference in tax treatment between nations. So, so there's two parts to the agreement. <clears throat> the first one is a huge, huge overhaul of how large companies, multinational companies are taxed. And so basically, um, this part of the agreement uh, is focused on um, taxing companies where they operate as opposed to where they're headquartered. So that might sound, you know, like not that big of a deal, but think about it this way. You could have, in an extreme case, you could have a company that does all of its business in one country, uses the country's roads, uses the country's electricity, um, you know, you know, is benefited by a stable government, is benefited by, you know, the taxes and the people and, and, and all of the things that make that nation good. And is also, you know, uses things from that nation, which are, you know, wear and tear on roads and all th things like that. And yet, this company could pay no taxes on their profits in that nation. So that nation would get no financial you know, benefit from this company you know, to their federal tax system. They could pay all of their corporate taxes in another nation where they may not even operate. And that is actually the way that our tax system is structured right now. Yeah. You've probably heard of the trope of uh, the, the businessman hiding their money on offshore, <laughs> in the uh, offshore Swiss bank accounts. Yep. Um, and, and a huge re part of that is because, uh, you know, countries like Switzerland, uh, specifically Switzerland, has um, among the, the G20 countries um, the lowest corporate tax rate at 8.5%. To, to yep. put that in, into perspective, um, the average, the uh, uh, OECD average, is 21.5 mm -hmm. uh, the united states currently is 21 yeah and and that makes a huge difference right like as a if you are able to be taxed on where you're headquartered you'll just put a post office box or whatever in the lowest tax country and then you'll operate wherever the heck you want and so it is it is a, a huge inequality nationally speaking uh for these um for this like system to persist. So, so, ch and so changing this policy so that companies are taxed where they operate and not where they are headquartered is a huge change. Now, now one slight caveat here is that it only applies to companies that have profit margins above 10%. And I have no idea why they would set it up that way. Like, I don't know why you'd base it on a profit margin, like maybe company size, but why would you care about, you know, like, like maybe you want to only, you know, focus on large multinationals, not small multinationals. And so, you know, you put a cap of a certain, you know, amount of revenue, but profit margin like that would basically exclude a lot of tech companies that have low profit margins because they continue to invest in growth and, as a result, you know they can well, continue maybe, to skirt Well, maybe those that's part lines. of the maybe that's part of the reason because if you if you set it there, then it incentivizes investment and growth. Yeah, yeah, perhaps that's it. Perhaps that's it. So the second pillar of this tax plan is that it would establish a global minimum tax rate of fifteen percent. 
So regardless of where a company is based, regardless of where they operate, um, it would establish a minimum tax rate, which could have some really big benefits. So Michael, I actually have a question for you about that. Yeah. So right now I'm looking, I'm looking at the G20 countries Mm -hmm. and currently the only three countries whose corporate tax rate is below 15% are Ireland, Hungary, and Switzerland. So if it only brings up the corporate tax rate in three countries, how is that going to have a big effect? So, so that's a really good question. So there's two ways, as far as I can tell, that this would have a significant effect. First, and this is, I think, the reason why it's actually being set here. And the first one is that I think that this is used as an entry point to establish a method for us to cooperate internationally on taxes. Hmm. This is like an acceptable level that countries can get behind so that we can actually, for the first time ever, establish significant cooperation, totally rewrite the rule book on international taxes. Personally, I would accept like probably any, any amount of increase in order to get that ball rolling. Because like ultimately the answer to this problem is international cooperation. And until we establish that, there's no real way to, like whatever the level is, doesn't really matter. So you're saying that this could potentially open the door for like later down the line, the exactly. world gets together and says, oh, you know how we made it 15? Let's make it 20. Yeah, exactly. And the second big thing is that this is a minimum tax rate full stop. Those levels of taxes in places like Ireland, which is 12.5, uh, Switzerland, which is, I think you said 8% or 8.5%. Um, those are nominal tax rates. And so in a place like Ireland, which provides significant incentives for multinational corporations to headquarter there, the effective tax rate for large multinationals in Ireland is closer to 1%. So, the, so actually raising the effective tax rate to a 15% minimum would actually have a huge impact um, on, on those nations and for companies headquartered in those places and for our overall tax um, tax base. But again, the big thing here is that by establishing a global minimum and by taxing opera- like operation localities rather than headquarters, um, you are closing a bunch of loopholes that enable, enable corporations to game taxes and benefit from um, governments that they don't help fund. Um, and to put this in perspective, I wanted to talk a little bit about just how much money the U.S. loses out on because companies operate here, but they headquarter somewhere else. So something like 75% of Fortune 500 companies um, in 2016 were headquartered outside of the U.S. By definition, Fortune 500 companies are have the, they're the companies with the 500 largest revenue in the United States, and 75% of them were headquartered somewhere else. And that's specifically because of that disparate tax status in tax havens like Switzerland and like Ireland. The development of this disparate taxing system has enabled com- companies 
to go from paying one-third of U.S. federal revenues 60 years ago to paying one-tenth of federal revenues today. And U.S. corporations annually avoid 90 to $100 billion in income taxes by shifting profits to subsidies and, um, you know, by being headquartered in nations where they don't operate. So, like, $100 billion per year. U.S. corporations hold $2.1 trillion, trillion dollars in profit offshore in these tax havens. To put that in perspective, that's nearly 10% of the U.S. GDP owned by American firms and held somewhere else. 26 of those profitable Fortune 500 companies um, paid no federal income tax from 2008 to 2012. And 111 large profitable corporations paid zero federal income taxes um, over the last five years. And, and this is almost all due to these tax haven nations. And so getting to a place where, you know, we can establish a global minimum and we can operate or we can tax on operations is going to really benefit the United States and will enable us to pursue, you know, relatively expensive agendas. That's the reason why Janet Yellen is out there um, pursuing this. And the reason why this is, you know, really important to the Biden administration is that this would enable um, increasing the U.S. tax base without increasing U.S. tax rate. Um, and so that would help fund things like the infrastructure and jobs plan. Um, and, and in addition, establishing a global rate would also take pressure off of, would, would, would take the wind out of the sails of arguments against increasing domestic taxes. Because one of the main arguments that Republicans and, you know, and businesses use is that they'll be at a competitive disadvantage with other nations and other and companies from other nations if they have to pay more taxes in the U.S. But by removing some of those disparate um, tax treatments, we'll actually be leveling the playing field significantly. Well, so the United States' um, current corporate tax rate is 21%. Now, now Biden wants to raise it to 28%, but even if we do, do leave it at 21%, that is still significantly above the proposed minimum. So, like, uh, currently, uh, Canada, Lithuania, they both have 15% um, tax rates. I assume that, you know, if this would go under effect, uh, Ireland, Hungary, and Switzerland, they would all have 15% tax rates because they would go right for the minimum. Wouldn't companies still want to invest more so in the countries that have that that are at that minimum rather than countries like the United States that would be above that minimum? So, so two things. One, these companies aren't investing in these nations. Or not investing, but you know, have their money in the sure. nations. Yeah, but I but but you know, that's a really important point, right? Like having like having your, wherever your headquarters is doesn't mean you're investing there. So there's there's big argument from Republicans that increasing domestic taxes is going to reduce domestic investment. But there's actually in our current tax system there's no real relationship between the two, especially or specifically for large multinational corporations. The second thing is that um, that I think is where the the first pillar of this agreement comes in. 
where you're taxed on where you operate. To me, that's the most significant, even more than a global minimum, is making sure that where companies are operating, where they're benefiting, where they're getting their revenue, is where they pay their taxes. So you can't just have a mailbox in Switzerland and say that's where our headquarters are. Yeah, or, I mean, you can, but if you're selling shit in the United States, you you're paying pay taxes in the United yeah. States. Yeah. So that that what I like about this is that, you know, t to your point, this destroys the argument the Republicans are always making. Mm -hmm. But what I what I like about it is that it's it's the approach that Republicans always seemed to pretend didn't exist. Yeah. So like so like, you know, I, you're always hearing Republicans saying, oh, well, if you increase taxes on these corporations, they're just going to go elsewhere and we don't want to lose out on that tax revenue. So we better have taxes lower. And that argument, I feel, is just so cynical. It's just let's capitulate to everything that the corporations want us to capitulate to. Yeah. And my thought was always, or we could just change the rules so they can't do that, find yeah. ways to change rules so they can't do that. Like, yeah. we don't have to accept that that is the way things are going to be. Yeah, this is not Catan. <laughs> so I, I love how it's like the argument that has been there all along yeah that's just been ignored is finally just being brought up as a oh wait holy shit we look at this because <laughs> that's what happens when nerds run the federal reserve <laughs> exactly. and care about taxes <laughs> so i you know when i first heard about this like i i had heard some leftist commentators talk about how this was kind of just like uh ceremonial mm. that um that it wasn't really going to go anywhere, that it, it wasn't really going to do much. Um, but, you know, mostly because, like, how could they enforce it? But if it's really being picked up by the G7, and, like, there's actually steps being, being taken in order to implement it at this point that actually seem fairly practical, mm -hmm. then maybe it's not just window dressing. Maybe this is something that could actually be something. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a priority. And the fact is the G7 comprise the largest most powerful com countries in the world like if they say if you want to do if you want to you know trade with yeah. us if you want to do business with us you need to you know adopt these tax laws it's it will happen yeah. now there's still kind of an uphill battle right like this agreement is a start but like republicans are against it for no fucking reason <laughs> it's really crazy. Their arguments are like each one it's of them like is like. Been, it's like you've been saying that the problem all along has been like they're going to go overseas. It's like, all right, we fixed that problem. Yeah. The problem is the like, real problem shit. is that they're going to feel really <laughs> silly when the, you know, when the, what they got tattooed on their lips so you could read them no new taxes <laughs> turns out to be wrong. No, yeah, they claim it's going to put the U.S. at a disadvantage, no that it'll be. That'll be anti-competitive. That'll that'll hurt economic growth. And there's like there's really no anti. How could it be anti-competitive? I know, <laughs> I know. It's like how could it be anti-competitive? It's literally. It is the exact opposite. It, yeah, and it's literally going to put the U.S. in a better position from a tax perspective. And like, it's because they're all bought off. I mean, it's it's the most. I mean, Occam's razor is that they're all just bought off. So of course they're going to be against this. Yeah. Because, you know, not because it, it, it not because it wouldn't benefit the United States, because it absolutely would. 
it wouldn't benefit their corporate donors mm-hmm. and that's who they care about that's who's really important yeah and and on top of the us challenges next month it'll it'll have to go in front of the g20 um you know the broader group after the g7 it'll also have to go um to the oecd um and and so 140 countries will have to negotiate this policy and ultimately at this point it looks like all of these national governments will have to pass legislation to enact changes to their own tax laws, um, which means that it, it could take a long time before this is implemented. One alternative yeah. is to establish this as an international treaty yeah, so that companies or countries can then sign on to it. Ultimately, though, to me, this is like very much the start of a long journey, but... I think it's a pretty amazing step and I like how much uh, focus this is getting, how much focus this is putting on this issue. And that's what we're trying to do here is draw more inf- more attention to issues like this that really matter, really are support, like really are important, maybe aren't the most sexy. Okay, so now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of of the the Week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is one of my least favorite names to to say because I, I mean, I just, I always mess it up. (laughs) Milo (laughs) Yin... Milo Yiannopoulos. It's one of the hardest names to Milo Yiannopoulos pronounce. <laughs> Milo Yiannopoulos. There we go. There we there go. go. There you go. <laughs> so what did Milo Y do? <laughs> well, Mr. Again. <laughs> Mr. Yiannopoulos um, is, uh, has actually been trying to gain prominence again. Um, he, he used to be known as the, you know, the, the gay white nationalist. Um, now he is trying to be known as the ex-gay white nationalist. <laughs> so just a normal white nationalist? Just That's a, nothing. Yeah. Just, yeah. So, <laughs> so he's, he, he's, he very recently um, declared that he has been completely cured of his gayness. Jesus. Which, um, by the way, uh, I am no doctor, but that is not a thing. That is that it's it's not it's it's never been it's been like there's never been any proof that conversion therapy works in any possible way. Hey, don't you try to don't you try to combat his random attempts to seek attention with facts? That's so rude. Yeah. So uh, he was he was on uh, True News, which, uh, you know, it's reliable because they spelled the word true incorrectly. (laughs) That's so and... that they can't be sued when they fake. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no reasonable person would think that we're actually true. It's not even spelled correctly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not true. We're true. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, he was talking about his announcement recently, and he said, quote, When I made my announcement, the first thing that happened, which will make you laugh, but it's true, is dogs stopped barking at me. Oh he went on God. to say, I am one of those people, you know, everybody's got a friend that dogs go nuts around. You're familiar with this, right? You got pets. So basically what he's saying is that 
dogs always barked at him every time they saw him. And when he when he claimed that he wasn't gay anymore, they stopped. I think he's trying to get ready to sell doggy gaydar. That's going to be his new. <laughs> he's going to have a training regimen to train your dog. <laughs> Look, I have lots of dogs and I have lots of gay friends. My dogs don't bark at gay people. That's why you need to pay nineteen ninety nine a month in order to get your dogs trained. <laughs> uh, he also said that over the next decade, he would like to rehabilitate what the media calls conversion therapy. <laughs> Which is, if you don't know, a horribly abusive, torturous practice yeah. to try to convert. I believe we actually we actually did a whole segment about this. We did. It's been classified by the um, by, by the United Nations as a form of torture. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't work. It uh, leads to suicide among youth. And look, let's be clear. Yiannopoulos, yeah, there we go, there we go. He's he's completely bullshitting. Yeah. He's completely bullshitting. There is no way he's actually trying to take some moral stance about uh, against being gay. There is no way. He still lives with his partner, which he claims is now his housemate. Like th- there is no way that like th- there is no way that they're not still together. This is completely a public con in order to try to attract evangelicals to uh to, to, to support him. Like, and that's the worst part of this. So, I, I mean, the fact that he is simultaneously hurting a community that he is a part of, he's lying, and making really stupid, hilarious points while he's at it, I mean, that's just pristine asshat level material. So congratulations to Mayo Yiannopoulos for being our asshat of the week. Okay, so for our last segment this evening, we are going to be talking about democratizing the workplace and uh, and worker co-ops. Yeah. So this is this is really exciting to me. When I first heard about this, I uh, like my first thought was, could that work? And my second thought was, holy shit, it actually works. It actually works. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about what a worker-owned co-op is. So first, let's let's read the um, let's read the definition from the uh, U.S. Worker Co-op website. So uh, the definition is a cooperative that is autonom- an autonomous association of persons united voluntarily to meet their common economic, social, and cultural needs and aspirations through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. So the idea behind a worker-owned co-op is, you know, like Michael said earlier, democratizing the workforce, meaning that all the employees have an equal amount of power. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing, one caveat to that, there can be probationary periods. So like, it's not like a, a person who just joined the company a week ago has the exact same amount of power as someone who's been there for like seven years. Yeah. Um, there, there is often a probationary period. It, it depends. They, each co-op sets their own rules regarding that. But the nice thing about it is collectively they get to set those rules for themselves. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the guiding principles behind 
um, behind worker-owned co-ops. And we'll, we'll discuss each one of them individually. So again, this comes from the US Worker Co-op website. So the first principle is voluntary and open membership. Basically, this means that anybody who, regardless of, uh, of gender, um, social status, racial status, political affiliation, uh, religion, anybody's welcome, participation is voluntary. Uh, number two, democratic member control. So in some worker-owned co-ops, they actually do have a more traditionally hierarchical structure, which means that they might even have a president of the company. They might have certain people elected to specific positions. Others, it might be a little bit less hierarchical. Um, it might be more of a, all right, this person is in charge of this because this is what they're an expert in. Mm -hmm. This group of people is in charge of this because this is what they're an expert in. And collectively as a group, you decide on those things. I think, I think that's a huge point too, that co-ops and like democratizing the workplace in general can take a lot of different forms. When yeah. I was first thinking about this, I was really worried about, you know, I knew, I knew that it worked. So some forms work, but I was, I was thinking about how challenging it is to make decisions as a democratic unit. And, and that's why we have a democratic Republic in the United States, for example, where we, yeah. where we allocate certain responsibilities specifically to experts that are designed, that are given the roles of legislating and, you know, being in the judiciary and all those and executing and stuff like that. Um, so the idea that like everybody's going to weigh in on every business decision seems like a nightmare like a literal nightmare to me. <laughs> but the thing is that it does take a lot of different forms and yeah. many of them have role specialization. Yeah. And the great thing is as a group, they get to decide what form that takes. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think for some structures, for some, uh, work structures, a more traditional hierarchical structure where you elect the leaders might, might make more sense. And for other structures, it might make more sense to have it be more spread out more, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not that there's a hierarchy, but it's that, you know, this person is an expert in this area. Therefore, they are in charge of making decisions for the company um, that are related to that. And this person is an expert in this area and they're in charge of making decisions that are related to that. Um, so then the third principle is member economic participation. And this one's really important. Mm. And this is actually one of the reasons why worker-owned co-ops actually tends to be more productive than traditional structures. So think about it this way. You know, you're working a minimum wage job at McDonald's, all right? If you cook like 50 burgers in one hour, you basically get the exact same amount of money as if you cooked 30 burgers in one hour, all right? You don't really have a financial incentive to do better. Yeah. Because the 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 success of the company doesn't really affect you that much. I mean, yeah, if, if the company really goes under, they might start laying people off, but there's not as much of a direct incentive for you to be more productive. You don't see a direct benefit um, from one day to the next from you being a more productive worker, other than maybe the fact that you get to keep your job. <laughs> um, when it comes to worker-owned co-ops, that participation is much more direct and defined. So there are some, there are actually some companies, uh, some worker-owned co-ops. For example, um, there is the, uh, the Union Cab Cooperative in Madison, Wisconsin, in which there's actually a policy that is set 
forth by the company, which of course they, they all voted on, um, that the highest paid worker could not earn more than four times the lowest paid worker, mm. which means that if the highest paid worker wants more money, then they, they have an incentive to raise the pay of the lowest paid worker. And if the lowest paid worker wants more money, then um, they are incentivized to work harder to make the company more profitable. Now, to put this into perspective, the average CEO currently earns 273 times more than the average worker. And those are averages. The, the, those are averages. Yeah. So a system like this would still have some economic inequality, which a certain amount of income inequality makes sense. Yeah. Because you want the people that are more experienced, that, are, that do more, yeah, to be compensated. Yeah, you want a, a meritocratic system. Exactly. You do want to create an actual meritocracy. But the thing is, our current levels of income inequality are so outrageous that any attempt to, to claim that the quantity is proportional to the amount of work is just ridiculous. Like, you might argue that the CEO of, of your average company, you know, maybe they do three, four, five maybe six times the amount of work as the average worker, all right? And that's being generous. No reasonable person could argue that they're doing 273 times more work than the average worker. No one could make that argument with a straight face. Like, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous, over-the-top argument. Mm. So what makes this more competitive and what makes, this, what makes worker co worker-owned co-ops more, um, more likely to generate... Uh, productivity is that if the workers do well, they're more likely to get paid more. So there is a direct incentive for, for getting paid more. Principle number four, autonomy and independence. So as we talked about, um, these organizations are uh, autonomous. You know, they might be guided by certain principles, but they're, they come in multiple different forms. Now, if they enter into agreements with other organizations, such as a government or another company, um, they do so democratically. Hmm. As a collective, they have to decide whether or not they're going to enter into those agreements. It's not just one person making those decisions. You know, and that is the biggest way that they maintain their cooperative autonomy. Hmm. Principle number five, education and training information. So, this this one's fairly obvious. You know, obviously, you want to incentivize investing in your workers. So you want to, to train them and educate them, and you want that to, that to be a priority. Because the more work that they do, the more productive they are, you know, the better that they do for the company. Mm -hmm. And if they're able to increase the company and, and invest themselves directly into the company, then it benefits everybody. So, you know, I... I'd say that uh, this is something, this is a principle that you would also be present in even non-cooperative companies. So I, um, but, but I think it is still important to note. Um, number six, uh, cooperation among cooperatives. So this idea is that uh, you serve their members effectively and strengthen the cooperative movement by working together through local, national, and regional structures. So, 
One of the important things to note about worker-owned cooperatives is that they're usually heavily localized, mm. which means that the communities that these people are working in are communities that they have a vested interest yeah. in improving. That's really interesting. Yeah. That, that, that's really powerful to me because another, another issue that I was thinking about was how to scale something like this where, yeah. you know, as human beings, we can maintain interest in relationships with about 150 people yeah. total. And so like just cognitively, that's like the maximum number of people that we can be aware of the interests of. And so like, you once you grow an organization past that group, you no longer have people connected to everyone. Like you're no, people are no longer connected, and so it's hard to make decisions with each other in mind all the time yeah. when you are a large group like that. But having localized like chapters of a larger organization, kind of like unions, which is like a classic example of a worker cooperative, um, yeah, you know, yeah. helps solve that problem. Well, and not only that, uh, and I think that this this is a really important point. Um, think of, think of it this way. Uh, say there is a, you know, CEO of a large company that does that like builds a certain product with factories all over the United States, and maybe maybe that CEO lives in New York City they don't have a vested interest in the community that one of their factories might be in, mm. in say the state of Utah, like mm -hmm. say they have a, they have a, there's a factory in the state of Utah. They don't have much interest in that community. They, they, they're not invested in that community. So if that factory is doing practices that put that community at risk, why should the CEO care? But because, but if we make it so that it's work around cooperatives so that the people within the factory are empowered to make their own decisions as to what to do, like how best to run things within that factory, they're more likely to make decisions that will be better for the community because they got to live in the community. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, which is, which is actually the seventh principle concern for community, um, you know, sustain, uh, in order to have sustainable development, um, the policies need to be approved by the members who are a part of the communities in which these places physically are. Hmm. So overall, democratization of the workforce is very obviously beneficial in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I want to address a very important counter argument. And that is the fact that um, democracy can sometimes make it so that people that have no idea what the fuck they're talking about <laughs> have exactly the same amount of power as somebody that does. Yeah. You know, so for example, you know, in the United States, you could take a, a person who has a PhD in political science and knows the history of the entire country can explain to you how a marginal tax rate works, all of that. Um, that person might have the exact same voting power as another person who uh, thinks windmills cause, cause cancer. That is the yeah. actual situation that we have. <laughs> <laughs> so the argument then is, is it really beneficial to have those people have the same amount of power? So two points to that. Number one, 
in order for worker-owned cooperatives to actually function properly, training has to be prioritized. And the thing is, training is prioritized. Mm. That's one of the guiding principles. Also, it's a lot easier to democratically eject a worker from a workforce mm. than it is to eject an idiot from a country. Fair and enough. You, you can't yeah. legally do that. You know, yeah. it, it, it doesn't matter how stupid someone is. You can't just kick them out of the country. But you can decide to fire somebody if they're not being a productive worker. Mm. You know, if they're not doing what they need to be doing. So, I would say that that, you know, that that is an important. That's an important counterpoint. Also, that same. I mean, that same argument can easily be turned around because one of the biggest arguments against. Uh, against democracy when democracy was still, you know, the idea of democracy on a large scale was, was young. One of the biggest counter arguments was exactly that it was, you know, are you saying that an idiot should have the same amount of power as a voting power as a professional, as somebody that knows what they're talking about. And collectively as a nation, we decided that is better than authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. That is better than aristocracy. Because, you know, I, I feel like uh, Winston Churchill said it best. Democracy is the worst form of government except all the others. Hmm. You know, so, yes, in an authoritarian government, you might have a benevolent dictator who actually cares about the people who actually knows about, you know, knows what they're doing. But even if you do get that and that's the best case scenario, then what about the next one? Yeah. What about the next one? When you put concentrated power into one person or one group of people, that is putting a lot of faith that they will have the best interests of everybody in mind. Yeah. So, yes, there are flaws in democracy, but the flaws in democratization of the workforce are the same flaws in democratization of a country. Mm -hmm. And we decided that those counter arguments, we already decided a long time ago that those counter arguments did not outweigh the benefits of democracy for a nation. Yeah. So I think that a lot of this, a lot of the objection to the idea of a worker owned co-op is purely based on a fear of the unknown, a mm. fear of a change. This is the way we've been doing it. We've been having corporate structures in which there is a hierarchy, a authoritarian hierarchy. Yeah. And that's just the way we've been doing it. So it's hard for us to imagine another way. And and we should we should dwell on the comparison between like the hierarchy in a, in like a company and like authoritarianism a little bit more. Because I would argue that the incentives in a company are set up more against you know more more to incentivize the leader of a company not to be benevolent. More so than yeah. a nation, uh, you know, a benevolent dictator might be benevolent in order to preserve, you know, in order to benefit his country, in order for it to grow, in order to preserve his power, all those things. What that benevolent dictator does not have is a profit motive with people to whom he owes profit. And so if, in a company, when you, the more benevolent you are, the more you're betraying the profit motive. Unless you can specifically say that this dollar is gonna is gonna generate more money later on, you know the 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 profit motive uh, necessitates that you 
continue to put pressure on costs and wages in order to net more to uh, the owners of the company, the shareholders. And so for the leader of a, con a company, they're even more incentivized not to be benevolent to their workers. But think about when you take that, that profit motive out in a cooperative. Note that they still want to make money. They still want to be productive. They still want, you know, profit is, can be distributed to the workers at the end of the year. But really importantly, to a worker, there's not difference between raising wages or seeing a profit. So there's yeah. no, like, there's no, um, there's no tension there, right? Like making the company better off can be done by increasing productivity and growth, but it can't be done by depressing wages because the people that would benefit from the profit are the people to whom you would increase their wages. So there's no tension there. So basically the argument for democratizing the workforce is even stronger than the argument for democratizing a nation. You know, you, so this leads us to the last question, which is how could this be implemented? And the way I see it, there are three, there are three directions that we can go in. One of them I think is impractical and two of one of them I think is too slow. And one of them I think is might actually be the, the, the preferred. Hmm. So the first method is through legislation, through through policy that enforces this on that, that forces this on companies. Good luck. Now <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Um I, I think that and I think that most people that advocate for worker owned co ops acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. You know, acknowledge the fact that this is probably not something that you're going to force on um, on companies through some type of legislation. You're not going to say like you're probably not going to pass legislation that um, that says that the Walton family now has to give up um, their power and democratize their workforce. Uh, one of the things that uh, I, I, I talked to my dad about this. One of the points that he made was that uh, that this this is actually. Similar, the counter argument is one of the, the common phrases that Republicans used to use before they completely lost their mind, <laughs> which is um, just because uh, something is good doesn't mean it should be public policy. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think, so I think that makes sense. The second one would be a free market approach. And this one, I think, does have more merit to it, which basically, which basically is, We've talked about the benefits of worker-owned co-ops, all right? It's better for the workers. It's better for productivity. The issue is, of course, the person that it, it's not better for is the, are the CEOs, the, the people the, that make yeah, that currently the most money. make the decisions. That, yeah, that currently have all of the power and that are making like 270 times more than their average worker. So... I would say that because we're at a place where those corporations already have so much disproportionate power that a free market solution could potentially happen, but it would take a long ass time. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, the more worker owned co-ops get set up, the more it will spread, the more the idea will spread because, you know, say you're, you're living in a community in which you have a, you know, a multinational corporation with a crappy that that pays you minimum wage 
and a worker-owned co-op. Well, you're going to want to apply to the worker-owned co-op mm-hmm. first. So if we make that standard, if we make that, if, if, if enough of, if enough businesses become worker-owned co-ops to the point where that becomes competitive, then businesses would, businesses, even, even national, national corporations would have to either adjust their model or die in order to stay in business. But again, I think that's also a little bit naive. Mm-hmm. So I think that the best approach is to sort of combine those two. All right. You don't have to force companies to become worker-owned co-ops. But I think that perhaps a, uh, 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 what was the, what was the uh, paternal libertarian approach? <laughs> paternal, uh, uh, libertarian paternalism libertarian paternalism approach might actually be more the uh um the best way to go forward provide tax incentives in order to push um new up-and-coming businesses and you know even currently existing businesses into adopting a model of worker-owned cooperation you know and and, Hmm. and, interesting and that would help that would help sort of jumpstart the spread it would allow for most of the spread to happen as a result of the free market but it would still allow there to be a certain amount of public policy that is guiding it without just pulling the rug out from under people. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Not that I don't like the idea of pulling the rug out from under um, <laughs> corporations, but it's just, it's just not practical. Okay. And with that, uh, we will end the show as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight this week is that today I went to a grocery store. Hmm. I haven't been going to grocery stores for a while. And uh, while I was walking into that grocery store, you know, I I had my mask on and I looked and there was a sign that said, vaccinated people don't need to wear masks. And I stood there, I looked at that sign for a sec and I thought, I thought to myself, this is the Holocaust. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) actually I took off my mask and I walked into the store. Wow. And I was in a store without a mask. That would, that would give me anxiety. And <laughs> well, no. And, and I, I looked around me and, you know, some people were still wearing masks. Some people weren't. And I would say that, yeah, there were probably people that were unvaccinated. that were just not wearing a mask. that were pretending to be vaccinated. But I do think that that's a small enough number to wear it probably didn't make too much of a difference. Mm-hmm. And I felt safe. Yeah, I bet you know? that feels good. It was like I was wearing, I, was, I wasn't wearing a mask. I was in the store and I still felt safe. Mm. And it seems, you know, I would say it seems small from an outsider's perspective, but for all the people that have been living through this pandemic for the last like year <laughs> and a outsiders? half at this point, <laughs> I, <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't know. It was just such a good feeling. Nice. So, you know, yeah, that's great. What's your highlight, Michael? Plus grocery shopping. I love grocery shopping. <laughs> uh, my highlight was, was this past weekend. It was super exhausting, but really, really fun. I went paintballing. I went to a bike race. Then I got to go for a 25 mile bike ride with my brother, Dan. Then Dan and I got dinner. Then I got ice cream with a friend. It was just like such a good, like the pandemic's over style weekend. (laughs) So similar, (laughs) great freedom, uh, there. 
And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. Thank you.